0: This non-stop turn and twist, out of his mercy. What's on the turn of my girl? Imbojima tunala. Me all a walk like a champion, talk like a champion What a piece of money, girl, tell me where you get it from Knock on your entrance, Round pa pum pa, Can't let me in, me of the thing where you a weapon Walk like a champion, talk like a champion What a piece of money, girl, how will you get it from Lap on your entrance, Round pa pum pa, Can't let me in, why? Supposed you be more than dead To take your hand and lead you to the promised land Me twenty foot dive on got to do with me true, so let's correspond Satisfying your emotion At a the breast, instantly she was. She know all and tough, and she know got tired of us Things smooth and precious like she never get a cut Once on to X, I've got to hold and pull up Get it up me, I forget to ease a mouse Think I walk like a champion, talk like a champion What a piece of body can, tell me where you get it
1: from Talk find your entrance Walk like a champion, talk like a champion Yo, people who know me know I'm a big boxing fan I absolutely love it The engagement, the strategy, the technique, the style, the personality, the struggle, the story, the triumph All of it matters when watching what we call the sweet science It's especially riveting when you actually have a vested interest in the opponents. It's fascinating to watch how people emotionally get invested into a fighter We project ourselves onto the character as if we're in the ring itself Boxing, and any martial arts sport for that matter, is a great example of the human psyche for both the fighters and the fans that follow them alike. Politics is no different, especially during election season. In fact, remove the word boxing and substitute the word politics and you will essentially have the same components with the same ideals. Pure and simple, politics is a combat sport, and our guest today, the Honorable Madam Commissioner, Agricultural Commissioner, Nikki Freed, is in the midst of a fight Of a lifetime vie for the democratic nomination For the gubernatorial shot At the current king of the ring Ron DeSantis But Before we get to her and the dynamics of that race I want to make sure We take a moment to reflect on why Is it that politics can drive out Such an emotional response from people In my opinion It's because all of us at some instinctual Level is looking for a fighter To represent our interest Our outlook, our passions, our hopes And our dreams If the four corners of the boxing ring is an example of the limited space where only the opposing forces can battle, then the political rooms where decisions are made or the debate stages where the opponents clash provide the same context and example. We all want somebody to not only be tough enough to stand and take the proverbial blows that comes with leadership, but throw the punches of policies that would ensure our victory. And it makes sense. The government is run by white owner class who only tolerate a limited participation from the people. The electorate, though many in number, very, very rarely have their interests represented to the fullest. It always seems like once a person takes the oath of office, they forget from whence they came and don't put up the same intensity that got them there in the first place. Let's be clear. The white elite ownership class hate poor white people as well. But the difference is they fan the flames of insecurity upon the poor and downtrodden and watch as we attack each other instead of, of asking us asking the fundamental question of why is it so politically unpopular to expect protection on the most basic human needs why are we always fighting amongst ourselves when the people we elect should be fighting for our basic human need and rights did we choose the right fighter to represent us and this is where we find today's guest she rose through the political ranks with an unexpected victory in 2018 and i say unexpected not in any disrespect to her and her successful campaign but in the political title fight featuring Andrew Gillum and DeSantis and to a certain extent Rick Scott versus Bill Nelson, it was the undercard champion of Nikki Freed who stole the Democratic Party show and came out as the top statewide Democrat in Florida. She faces an opponent who is as much a bully as he is tough. He chomps around the state picking up fights for those who seemingly can't or unwilling to punch back. The question most Floridians are asking is who is the opponent that will stand in the ring and go toe to toe with the current champion? For Black Floridians in general, our position is a little interesting. During the pandemic, Black entrepreneurship rose by 36%. This is really because either some of us lost our jobs and had to find something to do, or while others saw this as a pause in society and looked at it as a chance to redefine themselves and wonder if there's a better way to operate in their time. They look for purpose. They look for inspiration. They look for money. Especially in today's environment where financial insecurity is so real. The cost of living high and therefore the political stakes are much higher. And this is the conundrum that many black Floridians find themselves. Yes, you know, they may despise DeSantis and his white supremacist shenanigans, but they in effect appreciate that their business didn't suffer and therefore their families didn't go hungry. During this precocious time period, that is what's most important. Such is the dynamic of the black voter. We often have to balance our economic bottom line with our social purpose. It often feels like... No other group has to make such a conscious choice. So when they look at a bully like DeSantis, there's often an ostensible question of that plagues black voters, especially during the midterm. What's the motivation for me to vote in this upcoming election? That's the environment that Madam Commissioner is faced with trying to convince black voters that she is the fighter they need. Styles make fights. That's an old boxing adage that remains true to form. The terminology stems from the standpoint that if one person is a slugger, the other person can disarm them with skill, accuracy of attack and technique. However, the opposite can remain true as well, because a big puncher can wear down the opponent before that skill and technique take form. Make no mistake about it. DeSantis is a big puncher who obviously has enough style and technique to avoid any true direct hits. He's a Republican's wet dream, a Trumpian figure without the Trumpian gaffes. But no man or or opponent is indestructible. So the question is, does our esteemed guest today have what it takes to finish off the job that Andrew Gillum started way back in 2018 and beat DeSantis in the ring? Democrats want a knockout. And it's up to the commissioner to show us that she has the punching power to do what needs to be done. Is she the champion that Florida needs? We're going to discover all these things together. So settle in. Welcome back, everybody, to this beautiful journey. This is Culture Bias, and I am your host, Kamar. So thank you for joining us, Commissioner.
2: I am so glad to be here.
1: Listen, I am actually really excited for this one, and I'm actually going to, you know, preface this by saying, uh, when you announced your campaign, I actually, I, I contacted your campaign like a year ago. When I started this podcast, you know, prior to this, y'all didn't hear this. I started podcast like during the COVID and pandemic and everything like that. But um, I was really interested in you, you know, your whole profile and everything like that. So I was like, I really want Nikki Freed to jump on this pod. And we couldn't really get it in the beginning. But we're here now. We are here. And I'm excited for this. Uh, We actually have some mutuals.
2: Oh, we do? Who's this?
1: Yes. Um, I don't know if you know uh, Nikki. Nikki, she used to work for you.
2: Yes, Nick Harris. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. That's my girl, Nikki. And as well as uh, Karen Persis.
2: Karen Persons. That is my girl. <laughs> so Karen and I went to UF together. Yes. So we went to undergrad and law school.
1: Yes. Yeah. So KP. Now t- I'm going to give a shout out to KP. And it, KP is my dirty text message person. <laughs> 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 it's cool. Every Like, like we, it, politics, it's like KP is so funny. I don't know if you still like, you know, yep, hum- we, still, but we do. KP sends humor is dark like mine. And so like, I love her. I yes. love her, and she just ascended to the George yeah, County Bar. She president. Did. So yeah. we
2: were on the Young Lawyers Board of Governors together. Ah. So our paths reconnected uh, in our professional careers, and then so I knew that she had been elected and now just got sworn in. I think she has an all female board too. I think the yes. first time. Yes. Uh, that she had that there's an all female board.
1: Yes, and you know KPR so er, her and I are so close. Uh, when she actually asked a couple of my friends to be on the board, and I was like. Dang KP you didn't even ask me Then I realized oh you just wanted all female board That's what <laughs> I was like dang like what is up with that Like you didn't even ask me to be on the board But um, no I'm really I'm really proud of her and really excited For that and another, another funny story About KP uh, I was telling her I had a consult That day and I was like I don't know if I'll be able to make it She's like yeah yeah uh huh yeah. I just need you to be, be there To show up like she pretty much threatened me to go for her swearing in ceremony. So uh, much love to her and everything like that. But anyway, enough about that. So I want you to tell the Florida listeners and voters a little bit about who you are. I've done my research, but this is a good time for you to kind of like let everybody know who is Commissioner Freed.
2: Yes. So born and raised in Miami. Yeah. Uh, I always talk about the fact that uh, my mom is a a diehard Democrat. Okay. So she uh, was a teacher for 25 years, taught preschool. Right. So always taught me that who a child is at four is who they are at 44. My dad, on the other hand, is diehard Republican.
1: It's literally my family.
2: (laughs) Diehard Republican. So we pray a lot for them. <laughs> <laughs> um but I was really taught in the households where you kind of you, you learned yeah. and you listened to both sides. Absolutely. Uh but they did teach me uh some one common goal. Um listen. that is to what we say in the Jewish religion, tikkun olam. Kutun, t- t- kudun t- t- olam?
1: olam. olam
2: okay. which means to heal the world. Ah. And I so that. that is ingrained in every aspect of who I am. Mm. Um everything from doing soup kitchens and habitat for humanity when I was in high school, um, to when I went to the University of Florida, For all my Gators out there, go Gators. Mm -hmm. And so we had no competition there. No, (laughs) no, 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 no. no.
1: And I'll be honest with you. Listen, you know, even if I was, you know, an FSU fan, come on. We're not going to do that. You know what I mean? Like, Come on. You know. Well, that
2: was the other thing. My dad also had gone to FSU. Oh, yeah. You know? Okay. Um, So I also grew up as a Seminole, too. Ah. So I, I took that part, and then I got, you know. Fired. You really just broke away? You didn't I, even... I, I, I did. I broke his heart every single day. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so then I graduated, but I graduated from Miami Palmetto Senior High School, so also public educated. Yeah. Where for anybody who knows where our uh, next Supreme Court justice came from, Ketanji, and yeah. I graduated from the same high school. Right. So we wow. actually did a press conference there the week of her confirmation trying to convince our two u.s senators to vote for her
1: did you guys um, um we're
2: very far apart in age
1: okay i did okay yeah i just i'm sorry i just yeah. wanted to add <laughs> i didn't i didn't you know
2: uh, not very far apart but she she definitely graduated prior to right right to okay starting uh so then i graduated and went off to university of florida where i right. got my undergrad my master's my law degree i was uh, the first female student body president in almost two decades right uh, created a very diverse administration, mm. and then I graduated and went up to Jacksonville where I was in a big law firm in Jacksonville. Yeah. Hated every single moment of that. Okay, uh, Left because I also felt that I wanted to do something good with my law degree. Right. And that's when I went back to Alachua County where I was the public defender's office for three and a half years. So I saw up close and personal the the injustice of our system. Yeah. Uh, and about three and a half years into all of that, my dad calls. He was still practicing law and uh, down in South Florida and says, Nick, we got a problem. Uh, the big banks have taken advantage of the people. And now they're trying to foreclose on everybody's homes.
1: Mm. Come home. That was like 2007. Seven. Yeah. Yep.
2: yeah. Came, come home. And so that's what we did. I came home and fought uh, the big banks and not only just a tri-county in South Florida, but came up here to Orange and Lee and everywhere else where there was big foreclosure cases. Right. And about a year into that, I said, you know yeah. what? I, I want to be part of changing all of this. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm at the, you know, as an attorney, you kind of see how to, how to practice the laws. But I want to be able to change the laws. Yeah. So that's when up to Tallahassee. And so that's where the corruption starts. That's where the nepotism and the corruption and uh, mm. everybody always talks about how the system is broken. And right. I keep saying, no, no, no. The system is
1: working exactly the way it's supposed to work.
2: Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so it has to be broken and and redone. Uh, In about eight years, doing all of that and passing some really good legislation for our foster care kids, I was working on uh, representing Broward School Board, so public education and the expansion of access access to medical marijuana patients. And in 2018, I got frustrated. I right. said, I'm tired of watching good pieces of legislation die, mm-hmm. that the people are not really being represented up here in Tallahassee. Yeah. I'm going to run for office. Yeah. Everybody thought I was out of my mind. But I
1: actually want to get into that in a moment. <laughs> yes. I want to get into that moment. But I want to I just yep. um, peel it back just one more second. One thing I did appreciate about your story is you came from the public defender's background. Yep. I have a public defender history as well. So I'm always looking at, you know, when I see something like that. It's, you know... No disrespect to state attorneys. I've actually supported and had my last few state attorneys I supported have won. So, and I still have very close relationships. So I believe in state attorneys and everything like that, but that, that, but when somebody comes from a public defender's side, it's a different type of perspective in regards to the criminal justice system. And so that's one of the things that I was, um, you know, I liked about, you know, your particular background. Um, in this particular, and then also, um, how you actually uh, worked for a cannabis, um, firm.
2: Well, for a cannabis company, company
1: yep. cannabis company, Yep. you know, representing those for, um, well you'd explain. Yep.
2: Yeah. Well, but I think you're right. You know, when I, I had a choice right. when I left the big law firm, Yeah. Uh, to go over to the state attorney's office or a public defender's office, and I chose to be a PD. Yeah. And you know, I can't tell you, and I'm sure you know this too. You know how many people said, "I can't." How do you defend these people? Yeah, yeah. And I said, first and foremost, mm-hmm. it is in our constitution. Yeah. That you have a right to attorney. Mm-hmm. And, and so, if I'm doing my job as an attorney, there is no greater supporter and defender of the constitution than public defenders. Yeah. And but I saw so many times the injustice of the system. I Mm. saw how my clients were targeted depending on where they lived or what they looked like. Uh, And that's really where my advocacy for marijuana started Mm. because I am sure you know this too and saw it that the first lines of, of, most of my police reports yeah. was the odor of cannabis was right. detected. Right. And that was the probable cause,
1: the cause to like, stop somebody. Yeah.
2: And, and so I can't tell you how many times my clients be like, Miss Freed, I had nothing on me.
1: Yeah.
2: And they and most of the times they found nothing. They found no, no joints. They found no paraphernalia. They right. found nothing. Right. Um, and it didn't matter. And then right. it was my client's word versus the officer's. And just saw that I had plenty of friends that smoked on a normal basis and mm. saw plenty of people, both young and old, uh, that were white yeah. that didn't have that same situation.
1: No, so that's this is real talk because honestly, um, I went to a predominantly white high school and I generally saw, um, how it was the, par- the parties were interesting at those high these high schools because they would actually have all sorts of drugs, oh, yeah. marijuana was the least.
3: Oh,
2: yes. yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, looking in parents' uh, medicine cabinet and bringing it all with them?
1: It was either parents' medicine cabinet or it was things they bought off the street. But marijuana was the least, you know, uh, um, I guess serious one at these parties. And I'd just be fascinated that it'd be open free and they wouldn't worry about, yep. you know. and implications of it. Yeah. And then goes into college and the same thing. And it, you start seeing, you know, disparaging viewpoint on how, you know, people look towards Drugs, and especially um, the vilify, uh, vilification of um, cannabis and marijuana, especially in regards to certain communities. Um, one of the things about the uh, PDs, and I will say, just in general, it um, and, you know, I worked also in a domestic violence um, clinic and all that, and I, it makes you, it humanizes people to you to the point to where you start looking at people through the lens of, like, humanity and not through their story. Yep. You know, and... Um, to the point where I, everybody has a, has a right. Everybody has an opportunity. And I sometimes I think people often forget that. And that actually goes into my whole point of like the death penalty and everything like that. Because everybody, you may not like them, but I don't have to like your personal story. to I think you're not a human. Yep. you know, And so that's kind of where I think that really, um, it, it comes from me with regards to like the public defender and all that my history. And so that's what really I love about your story is it's fascinating because I think there's some kismic there as well. Yep. And, and, yeah, and
2: you know what I used to say to my clients, too? I'd start off and be like, first of all, I'm your only friend right now. Yeah. You know, the police aren't on your side. Hmm. state attorneys aren't on your side. Judges aren't on your side. Right. All you got is me. Right. So talk to me. Trust me. I'm here to defend you. I'm here to make sure that you've got your day in court if you so choose to want one. Right. Um, Let's do this together. Yeah. And, and, and you're absolutely right, because I heard the stories. I mean, I, I was... You Know uh, representing people that have been in the system for many years, yeah, if not a lifetime, yeah, hearing how they got into the system to begin with, the crowds that they were associated with, mm. and, and the problem that I, I saw is once you're in there, yeah, you can't get out, yeah. And and, and I and to tell a story that when I was in the PD's office, um, there was a time that I was walking. Of my dog before i went to work yeah. and I, I never like i lived in a, a relatively secure community mm-hmm. and i was walking my dog and i came back and my dog started to kind of smell around the the, the apartment and i said well that's weird because you know dogs are used to your the smells yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, and yeah. so it starts smelling things and i was yeah. like okay he's just maybe having a bad day yeah and i started realizing that like, where's my phone. Where's this? Where's that? And realized that in the time that I walked around the apartment to walk him, that I had been robbed. Mm. And I called, I had to go, I didn't have my phone, so I went to the office and and I called the cops and I called all my friends at the state attorney's office and I was like, okay, this is something that's going on right now. And I said, look, I don't like to to point fingers. The only person that I saw on my route Mm. was my next door neighbor's kid.
3: Mm.
2: And lo and behold, the cops showed up, they found my cell phone. That was in a ditch somewhere probably about a block away from the house, which I thought was strange that they found it to begin with. And they called the last number that was called on the phone, which was not by me. And it was a pastor that was down the street. And probably about 15, 20 minutes later, uh, the kid comes back on his bike with an apology note and uh, all of my stuff. And it was like heirlooms of jewelry and and things that I had had that were very sentimental to me, not even non-replaceable items. Right. And the officers turned to me and said, "Miss Reed, what do you want me to do with this kid?" And because it would have been a felony at that point, the amount of value of of some of the property and and going into my house. And I said, "Look, I want you to take him downtown. Mm. I want you to scare the living shit out of him, Mm. and then I want you to let him go, Mm. because I do not want another juvenile in the system. Because if he was to get into the system," He would never have been able to get out. Mm. And that moment changed my perspective on things. Okay. And how we as society have to deal with juveniles. Mm. You teach them lessons, Yeah, you don't imprison them.
3: Mm.
1: I like that story. That's dope. I don't, I don't think I've heard, I've heard you tell that story. I don't tell it.
2: First of all, it takes some time to tell it. Yeah. So most times <laughs> I get like two or three minute answers. No,
1: because, <laughs> you know, I've done my research and I'll try, as you're selling, I'm like, I don't think I've heard her tell this one. So we got the exclusive on this podcast. <laughs> That's dope. All right. So listen. Um, let's take it into uh, like a, a kind of esoteric theory based conversation. And I'm going to lead it off by saying this. I'm a big boxing fan. I don't know if you're boxing like boxing.
2: My grandfather was.
1: Okay. All right. So. Um,
2: I see the, uh, theme, the boxing behind you. Right. Uh,
1: yeah. And Muhammad Ali. And it's this, this picture above, and those, it's it's a famous picture of Muhammad Ali over Sonny Liston, standing over him. Now, the story behind this picture is more fascinating than the picture in itself because that's actually the second fight in Miami. That's after he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, before he was Cassius Clay. The first fight in Cassius Clay um, against Sonny Liston, and the the perspective on Sonny Liston was that he was unbeatable. Okay? Mm-hmm. He was unbeatable. He was a big bully. And the t- history behind Sonny Liston was that um, you know, he was kind of an enforcer for the mob and he was just a big, scary guy. And when Cassius Clay went into the first fight, um, it, it was he was just an underdog, right? And so... I think I know where you're going. I, I think you're a very smart one. I think you know where I'm going. <laughs> right. So anyway, so he was an underdog and he actually, he beats him. But the thing about beating Sonny Liston was that um, he beat him to such a space that Sonny Liston, uh, you know, did not want to come out To the, um, did not want to leave his corner Right, and so You know, everybody was kind of shocked And he did the whole thing, I shocked the world, shocked the world, shocked the world Then he goes to Miami, and suddenly By that time, he changes over to Muhammad Ali Suddenly, in between, meantime, between time Is saying like, oh, you know It was a flash and pan, I'm going to fight him again Everybody, and you know, he's building this up Like, I'm going to beat him again You know, I'm going to beat him the second time around And blase squase Gets to Miami, right and that's in the first minute of the first round. Um, it's called the Shadow Punch. He hits him with the Shadow Punch. Sunny Liston falls to the ground. Everybody thinks he's actually, you know, tell, you know lording over him and, and celebrating, but he's telling him to get up, get up. The reason being because he didn't want people to think that it was a thrown fight because Sunny Liston had ties to the mob and they didn't think it was a thrown fight. The real story is, though, and the, the psyche of Sunny Liston and the bully. Is that once you fight a bully and you realize you're not afraid of them, right? They don't have anything else, and so they crumble. Yep. And so I've always kept that story in my mind because I've kept this thing through uh, college and through law school. And I would put different things like, okay, you know, I'm the Hamlin in the bar. One time I put the bar name over like something <laughs> listed, but the idea is that things may come off as scary and impossible to beat, but once you actually challenge them and go straight at it. You know, you realize the chinks in their armor is their whole persona, and it's not that they're unstoppable. It's just nobody had the courage to go against them. So I just laid a whole foundation, right? Yes. All right. So how we're wa- gonna beat Ron DeSantis? Yes, but I <laughs> but I really want to ask you, um, how do you evaluate him in boxing terms? If you had to evaluate him as a an opponent, you know, is he, you know, how would you see him? Like, have you thought about him, or are you you still focused in on the primary?
2: So, I've thought a lot about Ron DeSantis, okay. unfortunately. Right. Uh, as a member of the Florida cabinet, I have to deal with him on a, on a pretty consistent basis. Right. And, and you're absolutely right that the whole state and the whole nation thinks that he's this invincible, right. invincible politician. Right. Invincible that he is, there's nobody who can ever beat him. Right. I do it on a pretty normal basis. Okay. That I have been able to, in cabinet meetings, uh, call out. Uh, some of the the issues I've mm-hmm. walked out of cabinet meetings when I believe that they were violating sunshine laws. Right. Uh, and time in and time again, I always say when I'm beating him, UF one, Harvard zero. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> and, and so he is a bully. Yeah. And he thinks that he's no one has been he no one else has been willing to just be in the trenches and take him on.
3: Yeah.
2: And he doesn't scare me.
3: Yeah.
2: We got elected the same exact time. Yeah. Uh, I won by 6,753 votes. Yep, I know. He won by less than 34,000. Yep. And he believes that he has a mandate. Yeah. And so every single time that we get into his face, there's actually a change in his like mannerisms. When I'm Mm -hmm. about to start speaking at the microphone. Yeah, uh, there's like a twitch yeah. that he starts to get. I see the twitch and, and yeah. like an uncomfortableness. Yeah, yeah, because he knows that I'm going to take him on, mm-hmm. and and we do it on a pretty consistent basis, and and he doesn't know how to respond because we're doing good work, right? And in fact, uh, the first time that I knew that we could beat him, mm. we did two things: one, Groveland Four, mm. because during the campaign, I made a promise that uh, as a member of the Clemency Board, yeah. that I would move to make sure that we pardoned the Groveland Four. Mm. And there have been no conversations from the Republican side during transition. I said, I want this to be the first issue that the clemency board takes up. No comments, no comments from the governor's office. And lo and behold, on our first clemency board meeting, we pardoned the Groveland Four. Mm. That would not have happened if we had not pushed him into... A corner mm. and were able to box him in. Ah, <laughs> I, I, I like it. I like, okay, okay.
1: <laughs>
2: and, and the second issue, yeah. something that I campaigned very hard on, All right. uh, was smokable flour. Ah. Oh. That they had made, the legislature had made it illegal. Right. And there was lawsuits about it. Mm-hmm. And Rick Scott had appealed the case right. um, to the Supreme Court on the fact that it should be outlawed. Right. We talked a lot about it. I did protest after protest, calling out Rick Scott to drop the appeal. It right. was wasting taxpayers' dollars. That was not the will of the people, on and on and on. Well, I continued to bring it up during the first part of our administration. Right. And what do you know? Right. Governor DeSantis decides to drop the appeal and to ask the legislature to make smokable flour legal. Mm. So we were able to, within the first few months of my administration, to push Ron DeSantis into our into our arena uh, to win on issues. And so we took him on. Mm. We won those issues. Yeah. And know that we
1: can do it again. Okay. All right. See, and see, that is a, what we call, I kind of gave you a thing and you you dunked it. <laughs> All right. Gave you alley-oop, right? Yep. yep. Yeah, you, you dunked it. All right. So here's the thing about um, DeSantis though. Um, And again, you, you know, because you, you're giving us an hour to, to speak on, so you didn't really get to hear my opening. But in the opening, I mentioned how, he's a Republican's wet dream because he's actually, he's Trumpian without the Trumpian gaffes, right? And um, how do you defeat somebody who, even though, you know, the former president's not in office, but he's taken such a philosophical hold over the country and over, especially here in Florida. I mean, he beat Biden by three tickers, you know, by three, three, three horse links here, over 300,000 votes here in 2020, how do you kind of, you know, defeat somebody who's taking on the persona of, the, or of Trump, but not, like, you know, the irritating parts about it?
2: Well, I do think he's still irritating. Yeah, uh. I, yeah I do.
1: <laughs> facts. Facts. But you get, you get what I'm trying to, you Absolutely. get what I'm saying. Okay.
2: So first off, we as Democrats didn't yeah. do a good job in 2020. I don't think that anybody can can say otherwise that we didn't do door knocking. I agree. We didn't do persuasiveness. I agree. We didn't combat any of the narrative that was thrown at us. I agree. Kind of let it stick, and, and so- we're going to talk
1: about that messaging because yeah. I think that's important. So
2: we allowed that to happen. That that's first off. Yeah. But well, what is happening to Desantis? Hmm. He is flying too close to the sun.
1: Icarus. Okay.
2: That is, that is him, okay. that he's taken and feels like he's emboldened by that 3% win in 2020, mm. and that he thinks now he has, again, a mandate. Right. And so all the things that he is doing right. is attacking every part of our state, mm. whether it was first the black community right. on the anti-protest right. and the yeah. voter suppression bills, right. to the gay community, right. um, to... The, the business community from going after um, our our first our first the the cruise line industry yeah and then Disney. it's now it's Disney right. and so he keeps going after people because he thinks he's invincible
3: mm-hmm.
2: and at the end of the day people are getting angry mm. people are getting frustrated because at the end of the day they're hurting right they're hurting financially they're hurting economically um, people are having to now leave the state because they can't afford to live here. So people are going to rise up against this. And as I'm talking to Republicans all across our state, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: moderate, rational Republicans, not this radicalization that's happened to the Republican Party, Mm -hmm. they're saying we just want our party back.
1: Are people really leaving the state, though? Because the pushback against that is that I've seen actually the numbers, like Central Florida numbers are rising with people, transplants from New York and California coming into the state because of what they call draconian policies in New York and California and you know all that and I get into detail about that but um, I know Central Florida is on mark to have a, a an increase in residents um, you know taking up residency here and in, to, all the way from Tampa to Orlando so I, I'm at the pushback is is it really true though that people are leaving the state or because I, I, cause I from my understanding, maybe you see different numbers that people are actually coming into the state.
2: So we do have a thousand people moving to the state a, a day. Okay. okay. So that is, that is happening. Okay. But what's happening too is that lower income communities
3: mm.
2: who probably aren't as uh, census, you know, mm. we know what happened with the census and right. a lot of people didn't get counted. Right. Uh, especially in our minority communities. Right. Uh, they can't afford to live here. Mm. So who is working on our service industry, and especially here in Orlando? Yeah. Where are the people who are in the tourist industry, where are they living? Uh, they, they, yeah. they financially can't afford to be
3: here. That's facts, yeah. And so
2: we are going to start seeing a migration out of some of those individuals who are going to go to other states, whether it's you know whether it's Alabama or Georgia or yeah. even the Carolinas, because they physically don't have homes here. Yeah. They're getting outpriced on rent. getting out yeah. getting outpriced on, on, on home purchasing. And you see no, res- no resolution from Tallahassee. Yeah. And so you're starting to see those aspects. But what you're also seeing is a lot of people not willing that are in, like, a teacher. Um, uh, I was talking to somebody out in town.
1: Uh, I know where you're, you're going with this. Yeah. And,
2: and it, somebody trying to recruit teachers into our state because, you know, yeah. we've got 6,500 shortages across our state
3: Yeah,
2: trying to recruit teachers in. And they say, why the hell would I want to move tel- to, to to Florida?
3: Yeah.
2: It's a war zone in our classrooms. Yeah. Teachers aren't respected. Mm. They're not being paid. Where are they living? Yeah, And so people that should or would want to come here, can't afford to move here either. So the people that are coming in are the high economic yeah. aspects of our state. Of, that's, that's true. Yeah, They're coming in and they're buying homes at the high end.
1: Sight unseen. Right. It happened in my neighborhood like yep. three times. Yeah.
2: And then they pushed down the rest of the market. Yeah. And so now people are being priced out.
1: That's actually great for me and for my equity, by the way. But yes, I do agree. Because um, I live in an area called w- Town of Windermere. Yep. I don't know if you're familiar yep, with that. Of course. Yeah. And so we are just a stone's throw away from Disney. And I often wonder um, when I go into the Publix and I see Disney workers in their uniforms and they're, you know, buying items and shopping and everything like that. And I, I literally, I sometimes I, I've been wondering this for years. Like, how do you guys afford to live in this area, right? Because you know, if somebody's shopping in an area, that means they live here. And the apartment and the rents are so, it's it's an expensive area, right? And um, I think it goes into um, how like, people, like, homelessness is higher, you know, people, rents, rents increase, as you stated, Um, and I, I always wonder about that, like, because I, you know, rents are not going down, the cost of living's not going down, you know, but, you know, the amount of support is going down, and that's, that's the thing that I really, sometimes I, I don't know how to reconcile that, and so, as a governor, how would you handle that?
2: Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge what's happened in our state. Hmm. We have a housing crisis.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: You know, th- this. we're seeing that from from rent increasing 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% in some areas. Yeah. That's not inflation. Yeah. That's price gouging. That is taking advantage of the people. That's pure out greed. Right. Um, so that's, first off, that has to be addressed. Yeah. We've also been gutting what's called the Sadowski Fund, which is the Affordable Trust Fund. We've mm. been gutting it since Jeb at the tune of $2.3 billion dollars right. over there since jeb and every single governor every right. single right. governor since jeb right has gutted the trust fund hmm. and so what we have to do is we have to recognize we have a supply problem hmm. and make sure that we are building more affordable homes hmm. so day one in my administration state of emergency
1: right i've been
2: asking that from our current governor who is refusing to do it to talk about it or right. to even acknowledge it. he wants to blame president biden for it
1: that's when regarding the tax right Yes. On everything. I okay. Mean, he just he just wants. Oh, everything's to, blaming on Biden. Yeah, everything, yes, everything's yes. blaming on yeah, Biden. Yeah, yeah,
2: Even though he and, and this is a fun fact too. So he keeps wanting to talk about inflation, about all the money that's been you know printed and handed out from Washington D.C. He's forgetting about this the, the, the trillion dollars, six trillion dollars that was printed under President Trump mm-hmm. that was just right, handed right, out. Right. And let's also not show the fact that how much money is Ron DeSantis handing out. Right from the Biden administration. Right. So if he wants to talk about inflation, maybe he shouldn't have handed out that money.
1: So is the funny thing about that, and I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, please. It's um, he did. It's like a couple months ago. He was down south and he did this whole press conference about how he was giving money to the transportation industry. I don't know if you, you know what I'm talking about. So he's giving money to the transportation industry and like he's, you know, it was in, I think it was Broward County and how he, I'm giving like 30 million dollars, something like that. And it was like, well. That's actually not your money. That was actually money from the Biden administration that two weeks prior, you're talking about how, you know, I don't want a dime from the Biden administration, but here you are in Broward County in a front a whole press conference talking about how, you know, me, I'm giving money to these businesses because we need to invest in businesses as if it was coming out of his pocket when that really in reality was federal funds. Yep. So he talks out of both sides of his mouth, but I'm glad you brought that up because I do see him do it a lot, but not a lot of people call him out on it. And it's really, that's the thing that it's bothers me. It's frustrating because why doesn't anybody call him out on, and this is, we speak French here, so bullshit. Um, so, you know, why doesn't anybody call him on his bullshit more often than not?
2: Look, I've been doing it, obviously, for three and a half years. Right. And when the infrastructure package passed, yeah, I was doing press conferences, which is part of my frustration because I was the only one doing press conferences, talking mm. about the infrastructure bill, right. how that's going to help, Florida, how right. that's going to create good jobs, right. how that's going to change, you know, a quality of way of life, especially when it comes to broadband, yeah. which we know, I mean, we saw how bad things were um, during the pandemic and how many people and families didn't have access to the internet, both in our minority communities as well as in our, our rural communities. Right. And so I got out there and I started talking about this and then he was asked about, again the infrastructure money and then again right. he was talking out of both sides right. he's like well it's unfair that Florida only got a small percentage
1: right. on one hand and right. then on
2: the other you know federal money spending Right. and so I was like well what is it Ron? Right? Is it that we got not enough? Right.
1: Is it Uchi Wally Wally or right. you know, or, you, know, you, know <laughs> <laughs> you know one mic right Right. Right. Did,
2: did we not get our fair share right. or should they not have passed it to begin with right. and so I was calling it out on a pretty right. consistent basis and we call it out on a pretty consistent basis on social media if anybody's followed me on social media right. but you're right Democrats across the country should be saying these things because the reason why the infrastructure money is there because let me tell you I'm going to do a little like a economy 101 okay okay so when trump i'm a lawyer
1: by the way I'm, i don't uh, right. you know don't 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 yeah, try that, to you on the yeah, us things. attorneys
2: don't do math very no well. no <laughs>
1: one plus one equals six yeah go ahead well,
2: right and that, that was in the math books that, that got banned
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> so,
2: so during the trump administration when i just talked about the six trillion dollars right $3 trillion went to, at the time, Secretary Mnuchin to hand out dollars to the big corporations. It was gotcha. blank checks, yeah. no strings attached, mm-hmm. same thing with the other $3 trillion. Right. And so a lot of these big corporations took the money,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: the goal should have been to keep people employed. Right. To keep their people employed, to make sure they had jobs, to make sure their services were there, and they didn't have to close the doors. Right. Instead, they did stock buybacks. Mm. They yeah. got bigger raises and, and money for their investors and yeah. for the for their executive leadership team, and it didn't go to the people. Mm. So now that is part of the inflation, because now you got all these really rich people right. who are now have all this cash right. that are coming in and buying our homes, right. that are buying the big boats and yachts, right. that are using the stuff at the high end. Right. And yet their employees mm-hmm. got nothing. Right. And some of them even got fired. Mm. Where Biden was able to do is create this infrastructure plan where the money went directly to create new jobs. Right. And there was a purpose behind the money. Okay. And so this was supposed to be an opportunity also not only to create jobs, help with the help with the economy, but boost the economy at the same respect. Right. Um, so it's a different totally different how we distributed the dollars right. depending on where you saw economics. Uh, Whether or not you wanted to just give out money with no strings attached and take care of your rich friends or you actually wanted to put the money into the hands of the people that need it the most, which is the workers and the people that are going to actually be building our roads and our bridges and the broadband and doing the things that need to be done on our infrastructure.
1: Okay. All right. So let's talk about um, briefly because I want to move on to um, a topic, you know, um, uh, black voting. But I want to talk first about your 2018 race. Now, you ran, and it was, and this is no disrespect to you, but it, it seems like you came out of nowhere, right? And, you, you know, you won the um, Agricultural Commissioner position. Um, you won by, like, a little under
2: 6,100.
1: 6,753. Oh, yeah, 6,753. <laughs> so, you, you know, you got 0.0% of the, um, you won by 0.0%. Essentially speaking, the could the argument be, all right, now you're running for a higher profile position. How do you think, it, you know, now be, you're not going to sneak in, right? And I know you're the only statewide elected Democrat that should, you know, be put on record um, and known. Only statewide elected Democrat. But now you're running for a higher position. How do you expect voters to kind of like just, you know, recognize you a little bit more? Like, you know what I mean? Because you're not running for ag, you know, people are not... Paying attention to the ag- um, agricultural commissioner you know, election. I mean, or, or, or tell me if I'm wrong. It, you know, push back on me. I'm I, I'm often wrong on my podcast. And my wife will let you know. But so tell me, hey, you know what? You're wrong. People were paying attention. And I'm going to transfer this into the governor. So you can yeah, tell. So them-
2: I'll start there. So typically speaking, right. unless you are in agriculture,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you don't pay attention. Right. Um, and Democrats haven't won that position in a very... Very
1: long time. First time in, like, what?
2: Over 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, And you're the first woman
1: in the position. First
2: woman, not just in the state of Florida, but first woman in the southeast. Ah. That I'm the only female elected commissioner in the entire country right now. Gotcha. Uh, So, most people don't pay attention to this position because they think it's just agriculture. Right. And so, I came out of left field because I hard talking about the other responsibilities inside the department of agriculture Mm -hmm. it was not only agriculture but it's the consumer services aspect and that's where my 15 years of practicing law and being a a consumer advocate for realistically my entire life came into play and we also talked about was very message disciplined in 2018 Mm. weed water weapons Mm. that was my three w's three w's yeah And so those were issues that were nonpartisan. Everybody cares about the water quality. We saw, you know, green algae coming out of Lake Okeechobee, red tide on our east and west coast. My predecessor had allowed 13 months background checks to not be done in the concealed weapons program. Mm. That was right after um, Stoneman Douglas massacre. Yeah. um, And talking about weed, Mm. which is where I came from. Right. From the marijuana industry. And so we showed the people of our state yeah. that were not in agriculture though it's more in our you know suburban areas and more of our city populations mm. why agriculture mattered why right. this position mattered remember the clemency board remember yeah. the cabinet and all these other issues that you saw a greater awakening of the importance of this position and so a lot of people would come in especially the democrats Mm. would come in vote they all know what a u.s attorney is right i mean u.s uh, attorney general yeah you know attorney general is the secretary u.s um senate position is you know what the governor is you know what a cfo is right Ad commissioner eh, move on to my state senate seats right and so they skipped that position it wasn't a sexy position it wasn't a sexy right and you had typically speaking two white boring men running for the position right so most people didn't pay attention to it.
1: Mm, I know where you're going with this.
2: We made people pay attention. Right. And so you saw more people in our blue areas wake up and say, I got to keep voting. Right. And so you saw a greater amount of votes happening in that ag race than mm. you typically have seen previously. Right.
1: So let me, let's let's move this into the governor's race. Alex Sink ran against Rick Scott. You familiar with that race? Yep. Okay. And despite... Um, You know, Rick Scott's uh, unpopularity, you know, he still beat Alex Sink in that race. A woman winning the gubernatorial mansion in Florida. How do you think you're going to, you know, and I, I understand it's laced with tons of sexism and, you know, patriarchy and everything like that. But how do you overcome something like that?
2: You know, first of all, we've been able to show leadership
1: okay.
2: uh, inside the Department of Agriculture. You saw what it looks like to have a Democrat in position. You right. saw what it looked like to have a strong woman in a position and take on the male establishment. Okay. And this is male establishment on both sides. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, no, I mean, no, it's, yeah. It's yeah. on both sides of the right. conversation. Right. And, and I think that the, the big difference is, too, I have a different philosophy, and this is where the female aspect also comes into play.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We, as women, leave our ego at the door.
3: Mm.
2: We want to work with everybody. We want to bring everybody to the table.
3: Right.
2: Historically, we, as Democrats, only focus on the top of the ticket. Yeah. All the money stays at the top of the ticket for the Senate race, for the yeah. governor's race, and everybody else is kind of left to die yeah. Fundraising-wise, support-wise, coordination-wise, you're kind of out there on your own. Yeah. And I saw it in 2018. After mm. we won the primary. Right. There was no coordinated. Right. Th- I, and I'm going to tell you a quick story to tell you how much there was no coordination. And this is absolutely not the fault of any candidate. This is those running the campaigns. Okay. So, as you heard, I'm a triple gator. Yeah. Was past student body president. Okay. Past member of the board of trustees. Yeah. On the law school council, yep. now a law school board of trustees member,
3: mm-hmm.
2: only female on the ticket,
3: mm-hmm.
2: talking about weed. Andrew had a big pep rally on the University of Florida campus. Yeah. Guess who was not invited?
1: You weren't invited.
2: Again, it just was, it just not thought of. Yeah. And so everybody's so focused on the top and not realizing that you're going to have strong people throughout the top of the ticket and our House and Senate seats mm. and other congressional seats where you got to work together and be able to balance each other. So
1: actually, I'm going to say something about this. Um, may not m- know this about my history. I was the er- one of the earliest supporters of Andrew Gillum's campaign. And to the point where in the primary, um, first of all, I want to establish number one, I, I don't. F- I always feel like, Governor DeSantis didn't win. I always say Andrew lost. And I have criticisms on how his campaign in the general election was comparatively in the primary because he ran a different campaign in the primary. And I know this for a fact because when we were intimately involved in the primary campaign, um, it was very much a, you know, guerrilla, you know, grassroots type of thing and touch every hand You know, you know, everything. And so I have stories about Andrew Gillum's campaign that I, you know, I don't want to take away from your moment. But it doesn't surprise me, I should say, because there was a lot of oversight in those particular in especially when it got to the general. I saw a lot of mistakes like, oh, my, this is not I don't I don't like the way this is happening. You know, you kind of, like, see it, like, it's it's gearing towards this thing, like, where in the primary, I, I knew, there were a couple things I just, I was like, Andrew's gonna win. I knew it, because I was like, the way things were operating, and I was watching the field, like, and people thought I was crazy. I, I was with you, because
2: yeah. I, I was on the campaign trail. Yeah. And everybody kept saying, oh, it's gonna be Gwen yeah. or yeah." and I kept turning to her and goes, I'm on the ground. Yeah. I feel the energy. Yeah. I see how... Black women are taking their children over to take pictures yeah. with Andrew. Yeah. I see the excitement. I see what's happening. Right. I said, "Mark my word, Andrew's going to win this primary."
1: Yeah, yeah. I and it was it, it felt validated because when he won, it was almost like I told you, I told you. But it was it it also you know it made it furthered my belief that people believe in a progressive in a progressive candidate. They can get behind a candidate and that they can see the issues and the messaging is clear to them, right? Sometimes people think about progress- progressive and it has this bad statement around it. Oh, you're a progress- pro- um, progressive and so forth and so on. But I always say like every positive thing in this country is based on a progressive mm-hmm. because you have to think about something looking forward. You're making progress. You're making progress. It's in the name. You have to think about – and if you tell people and you give people a vision, of progress, a progress, a vision of looking forward – nine times out of ten, they're going to buy into it. Yep, They're going to buy into it.
2: Well, look, look at this. How many constitutional amendments have we passed in the last 20 years? Mm. Look at class size. Mm. Look at using doc stamps to purchase lands from the environment. Right. Look at the restoration of civil rights. Look at medical marijuana, the fight yeah. for 15. Right. All, quote unquote, progressive issues that all get voted on by 60 plus percent right those aren't just democrats voting for those issues right those are democrats republicans and independents right so they so people in our state agree with our issues and i actually had this conversation with a, a national pundit
1: yeah
2: and and they said very clearly well nikki it's very easy you guys are running your campaigns all wrong absolutely and i said without a doubt yeah Without a doubt that we're running campaigns wrong. And that's yeah. how I come in this from a perspe- perspective. So my second degree from the University of Florida is a master's in campaigning. Mm. So I kind of see things a little bit differently and understand right. that as we continue to focus so much time at the top of the ticket, that's not how you win. No. you, you got to focus on the bottom of the you, ticket. You have to
1: ground it. You have to work. you got to
2: bring everybody up. Yeah. And so with all the money that comes into our state for the general elections, because there's going to be. Right. Seventy plus million dollars is gonna be thrown into the governor's race because right. they need he's a boogeyman.
1: You're right. And they don't want him marching to the White House. Correct. So they, they're gonna to have to invest in a gubernatorial race. Correct. Yeah.
2: And so how selfish of me mm. to only be using it for my race. Mm. Instead, that money should go to our clubs, our right. caucuses, our house candidates, our Senate candidates, our you know, the the, the city commission seats and the county commission seats, which right. is part of creating our bench. Right. And empowering them because they're the ones who are knocking on doors. Right. They're the ones who are going to organizing events. They're right. the ones who are doing the work. Right. when they turn out the vote, right. and empowered and emboldened,
1: right, it everybody gets, everybody, everybody, it eats. everybody eats. Everybody eats. Everybody eats.
2: Yeah. And, and I also say this too. Like, why in the world would I do a TV commercial?
3: Yeah. In
2: Miami Dade County, and there's going to be ones that are going to be like this, but overall, why yeah. would I run a commercial, which is the largest media market and most expensive media market? And only have commercials on me.
3: Mm.
2: Why would I not put the rest of the executive ticket on? Why would I not have the rest of the executive ticket? Why would I not right. have the other candidates who don't have the financial means to get right. onto TV and say, look, this is what the Democrats. Right. Not just what Governor Freed's going to do, but we as Democrats are going to do for the people of our state and okay. present a unified message right. and lifting up every other voice.
1: So I have I, I have two things I want to ask you. All right um let's talk about black engagement no, actually three things if you allow me yep. indulge me so um let's talk about black engagement um there is and i'm going to be very frank a lack of interest you know i go to the barbershop you can't i know i'm bald but i still go to the barbershop every week only because i always say it allows me to interact with people outside of my own silo and when you you know it's an unconventional unscientific but you talk to people and in other spaces as well that, you know, are the same commensurate with that. Um, there is a lack of interest. How do you push against the black voting apathy within or the apathy within the black community, rather, within this election? Like, how do you pull that or how do you combat that? Or have, is that something you've thought about?
2: Of course, I've thought about it. OK. Um, and I live it. OK. And, you know. So we, we've done a lot of things. I'm going to tell you kind of two things. One, mm-hmm. you hey, listen, too many times politicians come to the black community and tell them. Right. what they should be thinking and what they, what their issues are. Right. We've done it just the opposite. Okay. We have been listening. We have been doing Nikki listens tours all across our entire state.
3: Okay.
2: Um, different sectors of the community, um, the African American uh, community, the Haitian community, the Jamaican right. community that, and, and making sure um, that people know that I, I want to solve issues and I want to solve problems. Right. So talk to me, Right. be part of this. Right. And so we've been able to really gather so many of the issues that are on the ground and that's part of our platform based on what I'm hearing on the ground. And you're absolutely right. Two weeks ago, we were in a barber shop in, in um, St. Pete right. for that same exact reason. To go mm. into the barbershop, it was an incredible, incredible man, a barber that's in there, uh, who opened my eyes to something mm. that I did not know, that if a child is reading in third grade below the poverty line, mm. they are more, I think it was like 91% more likely to end up in our jails and our prisons.
1: Yeah. Yep.
2: And the fact of the matter is that when you are, are deciding how many jails and prisons to build, right. you based base it it on it the, ec- the uh, educational yeah. of the third grade.
1: Oh, okay. So yeah.
2: what he's done is he started a library mm. um, that every single child that comes into, into his barbershop mm. sits there and has a book that they have to pull off the shelf mm. that they get to take home. Right. And he, they read. And right. so they look, he, is engaging with them and reading. Right. So part of this is not only listening, but most importantly, showing up mm. in those communities like you do in your barbershop mm. is for people like me to go into where people are. Yeah. I don't expect them to come to me. Right. I'm going to go into the communities and I'm going to listen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm going to want to hear where they what, what issues are important to them. Mm. And most importantly, we're going to show up.
1: So, okay. That's beautiful. Let's also talk about it on the other side because my father's a Republican right is mine. I, and yeah and but you know the thing is and i will i i'm i tease him but he's a republican in name only because he really is
2: not my, a my, my father's not republican in name only okay <laughs> <laughs> but you know he
1: you know he he said he talks a good game but i I know what he does in the voting booth you know i'm letting the secret out i know what he does you know i know he's really voting for it especially my mom and i repress him so um but you know because of that though and i, I do interact with a number of different either um center of the world middle moderate i guess moderate um you know Black voters and um, Republican black voters, you know, they acknowledge that Desantis is a white supremacist. All right, I say that oftentimes on my podcast. He's white supremacist. I don't want to shock you. Shock value there. Shocking, right? So, um, <laughs>
2: if your listeners could see my face, right,
1: right, 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 and they will in the, in the video, right? So, but they even in that they say that you know what, yeah, he does a lot of like stupid shit, you know. But my bottom line, my financial bottom line, it helps me. And so like the stuff he does So how do you actually reach those voters Because if you're going to win Florida You need all hands on deck Especially in black community You can't just rely on You know progressive black voters You're going to have to get buy in From voters who um, You know may or may not You know they may not like what he's going to do But they're like you know what I can still I can hold my nose If it's going to go If the you know Everything's going to go in my pocket
2: So you know what The other thing is that that I know Mm -hmm. is that too many times white politicians show up in the black community and they talk about two things. Right. They talk about criminal justice Mm -hmm. and they talk about gun violence. Yeah. And that's it.
3: Mm.
2: We're not doing that. We're talking about economic opportunity. Okay. Looking at ways to, again, empower yeah, uh, the black community with economic opportunities. That's everything from looking at state contracts. Yeah, that's everything from things I'm gonna do inside of the office. Putting. Regional directors across the state talking about grants. I actually was gonna.
1: I'm glad you said that. I was that was give me one. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to kill you. No, no, no. Go, go, keep going. Yeah.
2: So and looking, I mean, things that we even did inside of the ags ag, you know, knowing that we used to have tens of thousands of black farmers. Yeah, we have less than 300. Yeah. And why is that?
1: I was going to ask you about that.
2: And and so much of that is because of an inability to get access to the USDA loans and grants. Same Mm. thing with our our Farm Bureau credits. Yeah. Um. And so the use. One, it, it's a recognition in that I see you. I see right. what's happening. Right. And we know that so many other issues in society would start to kind of fall to the wayside if we're lifting people up economically. Right. And giving them hope and opportunities, whether it's home ownership or it's entrepreneurship and opening up their phone businesses. So we want to create these regional offices where we've got people on the ground to work through these applications. Because so many times it's keywords that, you know, people can, you know, for, for the applications and for the, and for the grants. The other thing is 6% for giving out state contracts. Only, only 6% Mm. are mandated to be into black businesses. Mm. That should be a floor not a ceiling, and mm. why is six percent? Where did they come up with where did that? The, that arbitrary number, right? Right,
1: like completely. Right.
2: So when you have different eyes right. on what is happening in society and has a different view on what should happen, yeah, you can rake, make really fundamental change. Yeah. So when talking to those moderate Republicans or moderate Democratic uh, Black voters, right, you start talking about the issues that are important to them, like you just said, yeah. the economy, it's their bottom line, right? Why should they just be making ends meet? Right. Why should they not be given the opportunity to actually be, you know, overly successful and be able to create generational wealth, which has been one of the issues that we know is seeing so much in, in our black communities? You know,
1: and so I want to say this, like, and that was that was great, um, because one of the things I people don't realize about Andrew Gillum, um, when I talk to them and, you know, we we in a campaign, we still commiserate to this day. It still hurts. It's a very sore, sore, sore spot for us. Um, but we say, man, people don't really, especially black folks, we say, y'all don't really know. What Andrew was really like I know I know What he was getting ready to do Especially within Florida He was going to Set the entire thing off Because he was going to Appoint people Like I saw the plans That was going to be made It was going to increase Black um, Economics Tenfold that we've This this state had never seen And It's almost like One of those what if Things happen Because we were so close And it's like People don't I know I know What was getting ready to happen and it's always that what if type of thing. And so, you know, I'm glad you're talking about that because I think sometimes people, you know, they, they look at it like, oh, I don't need to worry about, I'm not going to vote. But I'm like, you guys don't understand. Democrat. I mean, Republicans have held this state power in for almost 30 years in the governor's mansion. If we put a Democrat in there and we, they, you know, she will clean out the house, the things that we'd be put in place will transfer, especially within the black community, especially if we have an advocate within the office, you know, will create scores of generational wealth that we right. can't even see, you know. Um, other. I guess, no, God, I know I had, I said one more question. I, can go I get two more questions? All right, so um, we talked about Andrew Gillum. Uh, what were some of the things that you see that were some deposit, and, and then, you know, and without being critical, critical, just critique, like, hey, you know what? There's a misstep there. To beat DeSantis, because you know how can I beat him? Because obviously Republicans now um, overrun as, f- as far as uh, registered voters by I think one hundred and forty three thousand now, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and so now, how do you see him? You know, taking some of the good, good things because there were some a lot of good things there, and it's like okay, there's some good things that you know, I probably could change, tweak it. Have you evaluated that? Like, kind of look at the, yeah. you know, the. So, st- so
2: I think that we also don't do campaigns well on this perspective. Mm-hmm. Everybody's so focused on turning out the blue.
1: Yeah.
3: Turning
2: out the blue. Right. Just turn out the blue, we win. We win, right. we win. That has never been the case. Right. That's never been a winning equation. Mm. You know, look what Barack did here. Right. He didn't just turn out the blue. He organized grassroots all over the state of Florida. Right. Outside of Barack, we haven't been able to do that. Right. You know, the last time we had a a, a Democrat was Lawton Childs.
1: Yeah. Walking okay? walk Lawton. Walking Lawton. Yeah.
2: Um, the state has significantly changed since then. Yeah. Blue dog Democrats don't mm. exist anymore. Nope. They, they've all turned Republican now. But what we have not done is we have not gone in and engaged the red areas. We yeah. have not engaged our rural community. Yeah. You're talking to the commissioner of agriculture. agriculture. Yeah. So what we get to do is mm. go into these rural communities. Mm. And look, agriculture is about 3 to 5% of the vote. Right. There's about 2% that still thinks Trump is president. Mm-hmm. I can't get those. Right. But there's about 3%. That are just really hard working Floridians. Yeah. That get up every single day, that work really hard, and just wants to know that there's somebody in the governor's office that are gonna stand up for them. Yeah. That's not Ron DeSantis. Right. Ron has done nothing for agriculture, even his time in Congress. Right. So we have an opportunity to get into the rural communities and get into agriculture.
1: Yeah.
2: That we haven't seen before.
1: So you went on the margins.
2: Win on the margins. Yeah. And that's how we won in 2018. We yeah. focused on 13 counties yeah. that we knew we either needed to flip yeah, or we need to lose by less. Yeah. And that's how we did it. And yeah. so we've been number crunching on knowing exactly what areas yeah. we need to, we know what our numbers look like in, in the blue areas. We know we need to be winning by 89, 92% mm-hmm. uh, in Broward and turning out X amount in votes. Right. And we know how many we need to turn out in, in Dade. And we know we have, how much we need to turn in orange and right. and. But we also need to be looking at where do we have to lose by less? Yeah. And that's what we did in 2018. And that's part of the winning equation that Democrats have been missing the boat on yeah. Um, and leaving behind Polk and leaving behind Brevard and certainly the Panhandle yeah. and some of the other parts of the central part of our state where there are Democrats there. But if we don't show up.
1: And you don't talk to them. And
2: you don't talk to them. Yeah. Then they have no reason to vote for you.
1: And that was actually one of the things I did like about his campaign in the primary we talked about. He had a 67 county run. And then when he. Again, I don't want to get into there's probably when you if you ever do come back on we can talk about, but it turned from sixty seven county to a twenty three county you know race and I knew as soon as I saw that strategy I was like oh my god what's happening but um, so I'm glad you you noticed that you do understand though Dade County is the numbers are I don't know if Democrats can rely on Dade County like that anymore Broward County you know yes but Dade County is slowly turning into more of a Republican stronghold or stronger position. I would say it's, it's still Democratic to a point, but you saw it in the, in the 2020 election mm-hmm. and I, you know, a little bit in 2018, but definitely 2020. Is that something you guys have noticed in your statistics as well? Yep. Okay.
2: So in 2018, I outperformed the top of the ticket when it comes to Miami Dade. Okay. Born and raised in Miami Dade, I right. have strong, strong roots. So my parents also born and raised there. My dad was actually born in New Jersey, came down here when I think he was like six months. So okay. I consider that born and raised.
3: Right.
2: And, so I understand Dade County. Okay. I understand the demographics. Mm-hmm. I think I had my, I went to, I was going to Cayocho when I was seven, eight years old, had right. my first Cuban coffee when I was eight years old. Right. Um, and understand the demographics and the makeup. So right. much so that our campaign is focused a lot on that Hispanic vote and the right. Miami-Dade vote. Right. Uh, we've got an entire Latin American advisory council, just like we have a black advisory council. Right. First time any statewide election has ever had right. these types of councils. Mm-hmm. And our sole purpose is to make sure that we're listening,
3: mm-hmm. that
2: we are engaging, and that we are going to, again, where they are. Mm-hmm. And some of that is combating that this crazy, you know ideology that has been put on us a label as being socialists yeah which most people don't unless you went and studied poli side don't right, even right. know what socialism they don't know, You can't
1: even define what socialism is yeah. but
2: but us as democrats saying we are not socialists yo soy capitalista is not going to be enough right um it is going and understanding why is that word so emotionally impacting right um
1: we understand why it is for cubans correct right
2: and same thing for venezuelans and yeah. colombians yeah. and those that have left um repressive regimes yeah uh, and understanding that emotional connection. And so it's going down there and saying, I hear you. Right. I understand. And I'm never going to let that happen to you here.
1: The funny thing about that, people say, I don't want socialism. I don't want oppressive regimes. And then they sit there and, like, they're like, but I'm championing this guy who's like an oppressive regime. I'm like, "Like, make it make sense. You know, the number, the math ain't method, right? Um, last question. And I, you could actually write out with this one, you know, give your final statement, but I would be remiss to ask if I didn't ask this question when I I always do an opening song and I was up until yesterday I was going to do a song called um uh Incar- incarcerated scar faces from uh the purple tape Raekwon right and so um I love that song I love the purple it's a great album if you guys don't understand that's a, one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time but um your policy about you know marijuana and you know, releasing people from convictions and all that and all that stuff. Um, one of the things I want to ask you, what is your policy on maybe uh, California's done this as well. They've released people from mm-hmm. prison or from the state from the state prison for low level drug offenses. Yep. Right. Um, which, is that something you want to do? And that's number one. And also California's done this as well. Um, and also Oklahoma and different other states. Um, They believed in giving a reparations for black um, to black residents who can show their, you know, ancestry and all that. So, you know, I don't know if you've thought about these things, but is that something you would consider?
2: So marijuana. Marijuana. How much time do we have
1: left? <laughs> as much. Listen, you're the one. You're the one who said you got to go. I can. I can rock on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your people are telling you got to run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so
2: marijuana. So I will be quick as quick yeah. as I can be on yeah. marijuana policy. First of all, we got to get to legalization. Okay, has to happen in the state of Florida. Right, has to happen in Washington D.C.
3: Right, for,
2: for numerous reasons. One, o- economic opportunities. Right, because we know that. This is going to be tens of billions of dollars here in the state of Florida on, on cannabis, both right. in the meta, in, in the marijuana space, but also the hemp space. okay. And so we need to legalize so that you have these good paying jobs, more revenue into our state. It could be billions and billions of taxable revenue that comes into our state. right Also gets black and brown men mostly. Right out of jail and prison. Right. It r- transforms our criminal justice system. Transformational. Yeah. Yeah. Also, less cost for our PDs, our state mm. attorneys, for our, our law enforcement, our courthouses, our jails. So now you've created economic opportunities and increase more money into our state coffers right. while decreasing the costs and you have social justice reform. Yeah. And it's also healthcare reform. Yeah. More people want to get off of pharmaceutical drugs, which is our cost prohibitive in the healthcare system, mm. and to use more natural. So two... One, that that's kind of the overall my my take.
1: Would you get them out yes. would you yes. remove remove yes. people out? Yes. yes. Okay. Hundred percent. Okay. Everybody
2: who is nonviolent, yeah. you know, marijuana charges, out of jail and prison. Okay. Expungement. Okay. Gotta happen. Okay. And stop the damn check the box.
3: Uh, yeah. okay. Right.
2: on employment, on housing, on right. you name it. And stop testing people in the workforce. Right. That has to stop. Okay. I can't tell you how many stories that I've heard of people being fired because they testing positive when they have a medical marijuana cart. Okay. Got to get that done. Okay. And the other thing about the marijuana industry that has to be changed too. Right. We have 22 license holders right now in the state of Florida. Right. Do you know how many are minority owned?
1: Mm, I can imagine like zero.
2: Zero. Okay. Okay. The only one that has minority ownership is one license that, dis- that they bought into the license. Mm. Okay. You have one more that is about to be handed out that's going to go to it's called the Black Pidford Plaintiff's Class. Mm-hmm. That was a federal lawsuit that happened that that these plaintiffs that were black farmers right. sued the USDA because yeah. they recognized what we talked about earlier, right. but they weren't getting their fair share um, and there was discrimination on the loans and the grants that are coming out from the USDA, so they couldn't buy right. land. Right. And so when this first came out in 2014, yeah. um, it was 2014, 2014, 2015, they had a requirement that you had to be a 30 year nursery
3: yeah well 30 I mean, plus y- years, years ago, ago right, black right, farmers right, right. weren't right. Uh, having
2: a lot enough land to right. be participating in this mm. so we've got to fix the program here to make sure that there is joint ventures mm. that we're breaking up the vertical integration which prohibits a lot of minorities from being a part of it because of the high overhead costs associated with it right we got to be handing out more licenses we got to get to legalization right. um and we also need to make sure that there's parameters inside of the marijuana program to get rid of background checks, yeah, as that too uh, is hurting, you know, individuals who may have, a, you know, drug offense being participating in this. Right. So these are types of things that have to happen um, inside the marijuana space, and that's part of reparations is the recognition that the war on drugs mm-hmm. targeted the black and brown communities and black more than anything else. And that we've got to make sure that we are recognizing that, that we're putting some of those billions of dollars that can come in on taxable revenue, invest it back into those communities that have been targeted and have been seeing, unfortunately, um, their black men are in jail and prison right now and right. aren't participating in the economic opportunities of those communities. Mm-hmm. And we got to invest back into those communities uh, in order to, again, the, the understanding of what white America did when it came to the war on drugs.
1: Right. So I just want to make sure number you are in favor of reparations for black um, Floridians.
2: Yeah, when it comes to, I was talking about the marijuana. The marijuana,
1: yes. yes. All right. Would you be in favor, if there was a bill pushed, by legislature or somebody say, hey, you know, um, based off of reparations from um, you know slavery, because I know California's done the same thing. Um, would you be opposed to it?
2: Wouldn't be opposed to it, but I obviously would have to see, the, right. See, we'll okay. see the language on okay. that. I'm not trying to be all lawyerly. No, 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 but- it's
1: fair. Okay, all right, that's fair. I just want to listen. I, 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 I'm not obligated, but I think it would be remiss if I didn't really ask that question. Um, listen, I know you got to run. I appreciate you for giving me a full hour. Absolutely. I appreciate you didn't you know you didn't run out, you didn't skirt out, and <laughs> you actually, you know, stuck to the promise of giving me a full hour. So Absolutely. you know yes. maybe we can do this again? I'd love to. Okay. I'd love to. You know, again before August and maybe when you get in the governor's mansion. Yeah. Okay. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> How about this? I'm gonna do better. Okay. How about you do a travel link and we can do it inside the governor's office?
1: Oh, okay. Right? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I like that. All right. Yeah. 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 So, listen, we're going to th- thank uh, Commissioner Nikki Fried for joining us. And with that, we're going to ride out. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks. Dear Black Culture, today's guest honored us with her presence and gave us insight not only into her campaign, but why she feels like she's the one that deserves a head nod during this primary. A fight that she's determined to disprove the doubters and recreate that same 2018 magic from her previous campaign success. For black people, it feels like sometimes, every two years, someone comes around and tells us why they are the best advocate for change. The messaging is always the same. Republicans are bad and Democrats are good. Vote Democrat. But honestly, I often wonder how much longer this appeal will last. When you talk to black voters, I mean, really, really talk to them. They are tired of always marching themselves to the poll only to not see any real fundamental change. Now, this is not any real reflection on our very special guest, the Madam Commissioner, because I, I am sure she really means when she says, that she will put the needs of black Floridians at the forefront of her administration. Not only do I honestly believe it, but we will hold her to it. But truthfully, black people are not silly enough to look for this great white hope of a political advocate. And I use that term white loosely Because even candidates of color Especially black candidates Can operate within the prism Of political white identity We are looking for a savior We are looking for a champion The definition of the term Is a person who fights or argues For a cause on the behalf of someone else That's it We want a fighter Because if we have to fight The natural urge to be despondent In such an uninspiring political climate Or better yet fight the idea Of safety and risk ourselves And our family's health issues and status To wait in line and vote In the midst of this COVID thing Then we want someone who's going to honor that fight And keep that same energy Don't think just coming to a black church And black community event Is enough to convince us That you're invested We are looking for real, true, honest engagement And interest That's how we base if this person has integrity That's how we base if this person deserves our vote And that's how we determine if they are a champion in our eyes. That being said, I couldn't think of a better song to write out to. But before then, allow me to leave you with a quote from one of our greatest American society's greatest literary spokesman, Mr. James Baldwin. We know that democracy does not mean the coercion of all into a deadly and finally wicked mediocrity, but the liberty of all to aspire to the best that is in him or that has ever been. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, beautiful people. Did you realize that you were a on the right? Yes, I did. So I packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something to show you how we live. Everybody want it, but it ain't that serious. Mm-hmm. That's that shit. So if you going to do it, do it just like this. Wow, the crowd is You don't see just how I fly my style is I don't see why I need a stylist When I shout so much I can speak Italian I don't know, I just want it better for my kids And I ain't saying we was from the projects But every time I want to lay away or deposit My dad would say when you see clothes, close your eyelids We was sort of like Will Smith and his son In the movie I ain't talking about the rich ones Cause every summer he'd get some Brand new head scheme to get rich from And I don't know did for dope, but he'll send me back to school with a new wardrobe and...